to speak of that sovereign grace. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. As we see God's word teach us tonight about a man by the name of Pharaoh. Romans chapter 9. Now let me point out something really obvious. Romans 9 follows Romans 8. And you say, why did you say that, Pastor Bob? Because Romans 8 is filled with verse upon verse upon verse that we draw on as God's people. From there is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ, to the Spirit helps us in our weakness and intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. To the know in all these things God works for the good of those who love him. To know we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities Separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Why could Paul say such things? I mean, it's, they're tremendous teachings. Well, we'd say he was inspired by the Spirit to say those. Yes. He's inspired in chapter 9 as well. But the reason Paul can have the confidence of chapter 8 and the assurance of chapter 8 is because of chapter 9. Paul would have absolutely no cause to write the 8th chapter of Romans if it were not for the ninth chapter. So let's read it. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is, Christ, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. and Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved. But Esau I hated. What then shall we say? 
Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he will, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say then to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sea, sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Thus far the reading then of God's word this evening. Let's again bow in prayer. Father, will you give Pastor Bob what is needed to explain the truths found in your word as they apply to us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Three things then from this section dealing with the Pharaoh that Paul writes about here in Romans chapter 9. First of all, the fact that there are multiple pharaohs. Secondly, the specific pharaoh that we are dealing with in this text. And then thirdly, Paul's teaching, or the teaching of Paul that uh, we are to deal with from this passage. First of all, the fact that there are multiple pharaohs. The name is simply a title. If you've been in Thursday morning Bible study or men's morning Bible study, we've, we've gone over this with other names in Scripture as well. Abimelech kind of falls into that same category. It's a title. It's a title that, that we today would simply mean, it sort of means king. It, it sort of means the one who is in control. Or to use the old English, and I can't pick on Tim, Dr. Tim tonight, uh, the, the one who is the sovereign one. That, that's kind of what Pharaoh means. It's not somebody's name. It's not their personal name. It's a title. 
but that title also has a meaning, right? So we have a name, Pharaoh, which means, let's just use the shortened idea of king, sovereign, but the word Pharaoh has a meaning as well. And it actually has multiple levels of meaning. One meaning is that it refers to the sun, Ra, and that in some way the Pharaoh is a descendant and a direct link to Ra, the sun god. So there was the understanding that the Pharaoh had in some way divinity, that he was a divine person, that he was above the ordinary, that he was not just man, but he was more than man. He was the divine son of Ra. It also means the great house, which probably simply is in reference, where does the guy live? He lives in the great house. So Pharaoh becomes associated with the idea of the palace, of the place where he lives, which obviously, compared to the rest of the people, is so huge, is so big, it's so large, that they're looking at it as being the house of the God. We read oftentimes in the Old Testament, uh, in the case of Moses, of going to the palace, the palace, right? The great house, the place where the Pharaoh, the divine one, is. Some take it to mean even a little bit more. Not, it, it, it carries with it that idea of the, the, the divinity, but it's actually the living son. The living Ra. Almost as if they, 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 they sort of have some sort of understanding that the, the son, Ra, is strong and powerful, but it's not quite the same as being here upon earth, living and breathing. And that the Pharaoh is the living, breathing son. Now, isn't this interesting when one stops to think about this, right? That here are these pagan people who are developing some sort of theology of the God becoming the Son. Only they take it literally rather than the spiritual sense. But you can understand, just as, as the start, then how offensive even this title is to God. Considering what God is going to do in the person of his Son. Which is interesting because had I finished Romans chapter 9, that's exactly where Paul takes us. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Who's that? Jesus Christ. And yet, that is put in contrast to the Pharaoh of Romans chapter 9. But who are these multiple Pharaohs? Well, we run into one Pharaoh 
in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. Remember, he goes down and he lies, he goes down to Egypt because of a famine. He lies about Sarah being his wife, and the Pharaoh takes her in uh, to his household, thinking that Sarah is really just his sister. So, what's the harm? He takes her into the household, and the household begins to experience all sorts of plagues. It's revealed to that Pharaoh hey, the guy lied to you. It's really his wife. And he kicks Abraham out of Egypt as a result. You also have the Pharaoh who is around at the time of Joseph. It would be a different Pharaoh than the one just referenced with Abraham because of the years in between. So you have Jacob going down there, you have Joseph down there, and the Pharaoh puts him as second in command. There's another Pharaoh of Genesis 37 through 50. You have the early chapters of Exodus where you have the Pharaoh at that time issuing the decree about, uh, to the midwives about killing the baby boys on the birth stool, or, and then he, when that doesn't work out real well, it's drown him in the Nile. That's another Pharaoh. That's not the Pharaoh we're talking about here. It's a different Pharaoh. You also have a, a Pharaoh that is mentioned in the lifetime of Solomon. Solomon is going to marry the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, if you ever wonder why Solomon gets in so much trouble with God, just think of what he's doing here, right? It's not just taking some princess from some country. It's the daughter of the living son. It's the daughter of the one who is supposed to be the divine one. And that just takes Solomon down a further path. If I could add a fifth, uh, Isaiah 36, verse 6, um, it's, it's the one, you know, don't go down to, to Egypt for help. Don't, don't seek the help of the Pharaoh. That, that's another Pharaoh. So there are multiple men throughout the scriptures that we're going to come across whose name is Pharaoh. But Romans chapter 9 is not talking about the collective whole. It is talking about a specific Pharaoh. Go down with me to verse 14 again. What, then sh what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, and then we have the quote, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So which Pharaoh is this? This is the Pharaoh that Moses speaks to on a regular basis throughout those chapters of Exodus. This is the Pharaoh that Moses comes to and says, let my people go. And he says, no, I won't do it. This is the Pharaoh who is given signs from God himself. And he will not listen. This is the Pharaoh who has placed Israel, the people of God, God's covenant people, in such a bondage that they are crying out, God, 
help us. God, save us. So when we come to the burning bush, what do we have? But God's saying, I've heard the cry of my people and their oppression. Now Moses, go and lead them out. This is the Pharaoh who has made life so difficult that these Israelites, the covenant people of God, crying out that God would come that God would deliver them. That God would have mercy upon them. The cruelty of this particular Pharaoh. The hardness of this man's heart towards the people of God. And remember, given our theology, these people of Israel are as much the body of Christ as we are today. So this is the body of Christ that is being mistreated, that is being under oppression. And this Pharaoh could care less what he's doing to the body of Christ. Thirdly, the third thing about this specific Pharaoh are all those plagues. All those plagues. This is the Pharaoh to whom Moses comes again and again. If you do not let the people of Israel go, the people of the Lord go, then there's going to be this, and then there's going to be that, and then there's going to be this, and then there's going to be that. And where do we come to at the end of all of that? And Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he would not let the people go. This is that Pharaoh. Don't disassociate Romans chapter 9 from the specific Pharaoh that is being addressed here. This is the man. So what does Paul teach us in this passage? See, the question to walk away from here would be to say, hmm, Romans chapter 9. Paul mentions this specific Pharaoh. What point is the Holy Spirit making? What's the Holy Spirit trying to say to you and I tonight? Well, I think we get a little hint, do we not? When we come to that verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why is there a man called Pharaoh? This specific Pharaoh? Why is he mentioned in the Bible? Why is he talked about? Why is, he, why is he given any chapters? Why is he given uh, his name mentioned? Why does he come out here in Romans chapter 9? I mean, think of how long it's been since we've talked about a Pharaoh. And then all of a sudden, Romans chapter 9, after this great Romans chapter 8, we get Pharaoh. What's the Holy Spirit's point? It's the sovereignty of God. It is God's absolute reign. 
who are you going to use? What, what human ruler are you going to use to demonstrate that God has supreme power over? What ruler are you going to use in a time and age in which the people who are ruling over you in the very city to whom you are writing are beginning to call themselves gods and who are beginning to demand the worship of the very people that are being written to here? Well, let's use Nebuchadnezzar. No, we're not going to use Nebuchadnezzar. Let's use Pharaoh. Let's use Pharaoh, who by very title thinks of himself as God. That the people think of him as the divine one, the son of the Ra, here dwelling upon earth. Caesar! Is Lord. No, there's only one who's Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. Who am I going to use? Let me use out of the Old Testament this man by the name of Pharaoh. And let, let's hear what God says. You think you're something. You think you're in charge. You think you're in control. You think you're operating according to your agenda. You think you have all these plans and everything is working out according to your purposes. And you're sovereign. You're the ruler over all. You can even oppress my people. You can even put them in a bondage. I have raised you up. You didn't, even, you didn't even come to this position on your own. If it were not for my work, the Lord is saying, you would not be in the position you were in. That's what Scripture said to Pharaoh. That's what Scripture is telling us. That's what... Paul is encouraging these saints with there in Rome. You don't need to fear that Caesar. I know his demands. I know his power. I know he wants you to worship him as the Lord. He only got to his position because the Lord God raised him up. God is sovereign. Why? So that my name, not your name, Pharaoh, not your name. See, who of us, knowing the stories of Scripture, knowing the truth of Scripture, who of us think much of Pharaoh? I mean, I don't know about you, but I kind of see him as a big loser. I kind of see him as a fool. I kind of see him as, as this guy who thought he was something, and God just went, The guy can't even stand flies. He can't stand gnats. He cowers. Oh, get rid of the flies, please. Get rid of the gnats, please. Oh, it's so dark here. Please get rid of the darkness. 
right? Who is this guy? He's nothing to the sovereignty of God, the power and rule of the one true living God. Is there not a message for not just the church of Rome, but for you and I today? In the day and age in which we live, in the power grab that we have seen taken place over this past year and a half, is there not a lesson? We do not fear. See, all the promises of Romans chapter 8 are based upon the fact that we have a sovereign God who is absolutely in control, and He is so in control, He is so in power, that not one of the promises of Romans chapter 8 can be taken away. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. The amazing power of the living God over any human, whether he be Pharaoh, whether he be Caesar, or whether he be the tyrants of this day and age, in whatever country they are in. Because I think one thing we learned through today is we're not alone in this. This isn't just us. This is something for the entire church of Jesus Christ throughout this world. Remember the man by the name of Pharaoh. I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Shout for the blessed Jesus reigns through distant lands. His triumphs spread. I know I've told you this before, but it, it bears repeating now. The church of Jesus Christ never decreases in size. The church of Jesus Christ never loses members. You say, well, church statistics are way down. Yeah, the visible church, but not the victorious church, not the true church, not the living church of Jesus Christ. It only adds, it only grows. Whether it's a prostitute in the town where Eddie and Rachel work, whether it's a Guatemalan farmer, the church of Jesus Christ only grows, it never Never lessens. Why? Because God has promised. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Why can nothing ever separate us from the love of Jesus Christ? Because God is sovereign. That's why. And no human ruler, not even a pharaoh, can distort and change God's perfect plan. Secondly, the election of God. That's what Romans chapter 9 is teaching us. Why are the promises of Romans chapter 8 that which we can hold on to and latch on to and know as truth? 
Not only because God is sovereign, but God has chosen. God has set his love, his mercy, and his grace upon us. So whether we look at this election through the lens of Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 6, that God's purposes in election might stand, the whole idea that we were chosen before the foundations of the world, or whether we look at it in Romans 8, 29, or whether we look at it here. It's God's purpose. It's God's way of working. It's God's choosing. That's what his words about Abraham and the promise and, and to Rebekah and to the two boys, Jacob and to Esau. And to his words to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, says the Lord. You don't get to decide. You don't get to make the choice. I choose. I'm in charge. I'm sovereign. See, if the promises of Romans chapter 8 are in our hands and are in our control, then if I latch on to the promise, if it's me who latches on to the promise, then what happens if I let go of the promise? But you see, it's not me latching on and me letting go. It's God latching on with both arms spread. Why? With blood pouring forth from them. It is God's electing love. It is God's sovereign grace. That's the point of Pharaoh. See, if you're going to choose somebody based upon what they are, who they think they are, what they have achieved, he's got the biggest house. He's got the title. Everybody thinks of him as the son of God. I guess I better choose this guy. Look, he's got everything going for him. And yet, what does God say? <laughs> nope, not Pharaoh. Why? Because Pharaoh doesn't get to decide. I do. I do. So we rejoice in the work of God around this world. But it is the work of God that we rejoice in. It is God's sovereign grace that we rejoice in. It is God's electing love that we rejoice in. It is God having mercy and choosing to have mercy. Not me choosing God's. Because what did we sing this morning? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But you see, God's grace of election just surrounds us, encases us in the blood of Jesus Christ so that nothing can separate us from his love. What's the point of Pharaoh being mentioned here? It's to drive us back 
to the fact that our salvation is not our doing. It is the work of God. Fully, completely, start to finish. And thirdly then, this passage teaches us the grace of God. The grace of God. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Because of him who calls. But listen to those words that he says to Moses. I will have mercy. See, that's why Paul raises the point in verse 19. Why would you ever say and challenge God's mercy? Why as a Christian, why as one who has been a recipient of God's grace, Ever challenge God's mercy? I can understand the world challenging it. I can understand those people with hardened hearts. I can understand a Pharaoh thinking he's all it, challenging, hey, wait a minute, God, I should be in. After all, I'm Pharaoh and I have the great house. God, I've done all these things. You, you ought to let me into your kingdom. I can understand. When you've known grace, when you've experienced grace, when you know that there is no way possible that you could ever save yourself. And it is entirely upon the mercy don't challenge him. You praise him. You do that which God said to Pharaoh. That my name, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so God has mercy on whom he has mercy. He hardens whom he has hardens. That is the business of God as the sovereign king. It's not my business. It's not my decision. But I am called to soak it in. To soak in that mercy of God. And when we come back here next week, Lord willing, when we're at that table, ah, it's that mercy. Jesus said to that woman that Eddie reminded of this morning at that, at that well in Syker. You're seeking common water. I'm here to give you living water. She wasn't seeking living water. But Jesus was seeking her. There in the valley between the mountains of cursing and blessing. There comes Jesus seeking this woman. 
even as Jesus, in his great mercy, has sought you and has sought me. And we come next Lord's Day to remember the price he paid for our sin. But ever grateful, ever thankful that he is sovereign. and That all those promises of Romans 8 are amen and amen in Jesus Christ. And God's people say,